There are three basic rules of mountaineering. It's always further than it looks, it's always taller than it looks, and it's always harder than it looks. And that's why I like to do my mountaineering from the comfort and safety of my couch through watching documentaries, drinking wine, and reading books. And in one of those documentaries, I learned of one of the greatest tragedies in mountaineering history. On August 1st, 2008, 31 climbers from eight separate international teams began the final push to the summit of the second tallest mountain in the world, K2. Only 20 of those 31 climbers would make it back to base camp alive. One of those survivors was legendary mountaineer and polar explorer Cecilia Skolk. Unfortunately, one of those fatalities was her soulmate and husband, Rolf. I got a chance to talk with Cecilia about that fateful day and how she dealt with the loss of the love of her life. We also discussed her journey to becoming the first woman to climb the seven summits. Those are the seven tallest mountains on each continent and both the North and the South Pole. The latter she did unassisted and unattended with just a friend. Yeah, this girl is no joke. Her idea of a good time is crossing Antarctica for Christ's sakes. I just binge watched half a season of Daredevil on Netflix and I'm actually feeling kind of depressed and guilty now. Cecilia is truly the genuine article. She's a hero that is humble and it was a pleasure talking with her. So here it is, my talk with Cecilia Skog. So you're in Norway, right? I am. Yeah, we came back from Spain and Morocco uh, just a few days ago. What were you doing there? Just yeah. vacation? Uh, yeah, ki- no, uh, kind of. We are, we're filming. We're making a sailing documentary. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, sail with kids and family. <laughs> but you're a mountaineer. But I am a mountaineer and I get terribly seasick so it's not much fun cecilia cecilia what are you doing i don't know i'm uh, the next thing i will do is to sell the boat right (laughs) i guess you're the type of person that is constantly seeking out the uncomfortable in life is that you no, not really uncomfortable, but, but excitement and new adventures. Because I've, I've sailed a little bit when I was a kid because I grew up in a, in a fjord, kind of. And I, and I always thought that I wanted to sail around the world. And my brother lives in Australia. So in my head, I wanted to sail to Sydney <laughs> and uh, to Antarctica and let my kid grow up uh, learning how to walk with penguins. But it's it's not the way I I was picturing it. It it turned out to be quite different. And where are you guys gonna go? <laughs> you guys are gonna go from Spain to Australia? Yes. From uh Spain and to sail along Morocco, the coast of Morocco and over to Canary Islands and from there across to Brazil and yeah, and down to Antarctica from there. Jesus lady. Yeah. You are unbelievable. No. <laughs> what compels you to put yourself in these life-threatening situations all the time? Because, I mean, it's a choice. You don't have to do this. Absolutely not. And, uh, and it's a choice. And it's, uh, I'm so, so thankful that I, I, I do have that choice. Uh, not everybody does. To me, it's been quite easy to find out what I like. I, I follow my, my heart and my, and my gut feeling what I like to do. And I follow, when I get like high pulse and I feel excited, that's when I feel alive and that's what I want to do. So you just strictly go, you just spin the wheel and point and say, I want to do this? Or is there, is there a little bit of ego involved? Yes, there is a lot of ego involved. That's in almost everything we human do, I think. If you choose to not go on these uh, trips, it's also ego. It's, it's your choice. 
but how I think people look at you differently, like uh, more egoistic, is because you choose to be away from a lot of things when you go away for months. I haven't been there in my friends' weddings, and I haven't been there all Christmas Eve with my family. So you you kind of choose to not be around uh, your family and friends all the time. How do you compartmentalize the pain? Because you're putting yourself in these situations all mm. the time where you are pushing the body to the absolute limits. How do you deal with that and keep going? Yeah, it, it's motivating to see that you get closer to your goal every day, especially the, these long trips to the pole and when we crossed Antarctica. When we got to the other side, we were out for more than 70 days. I was 44 kilos. And of course, it is hard some days. You feel you're hungry and you feel tired. The achievement that to every day ski and be in front of a sled that's 135 kilo and work so hard every day, I feel it's, it's so meaningful. And to share these moments uh, with a very good friend uh, makes it very... <laughs> Uh, was... Cecile is being a little bit humble. She actually crossed Antarctica, <laughs> right? Unassisted, yeah. Yeah. with no help, with her and another guy, with no like choppers dropping supplies in. She did it by herself across Antarctica. It was a time in my life when I didn't uh, function uh, at home because I just lost my husband uh, on K2 and I found it hard to walk into a store and buy one liter of milk because I didn't want people to look at me because it was about the accident in the newspaper and on TV. So people recognized me and I, 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 I couldn't deal with it. So kind of I went to Antarctica and I hid. And in Antarctica, there is no one that can wrap you in cotton. <laughs> you have to be out there and work really hard every day. And when I was at home, I didn't have to go to the store because somebody did it for me. And it's not a good feeling to to not be able to fix these things yourself. Right. In Antarctica, you can't go to the store and buy milk. You can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> There's no, definitely no stores down there. <laughs> Speaking of K2, do you think often about that? Because you must hear that all the time. Yeah. Do you have regrets and all these questions? And, and mm. I, I, I would feel that you're just so sick of it. But I do want to no, ask you be- yeah. about about the grieving process. How did you, or are you still grieving? I mean, how does that process work? Yeah, I'm, uh, I still think about K2, and I, I think about Rolf every day. Uh, not like I sit down and, and I'm sad, but I can think of good things. And I have so many memories because we were out on expeditions for five years in a row. So there's so many moments that pops up in my head every now and then and uh, and my parents-in-law uh, Rolf's mother and father they had only one one child uh, so they kind of adopted me when I came back so I have a lot of contact with them and they are my daughter's grandparents <laughs> so uh, but I'm not sick of, of uh, K2 or because I 
it's it's about Rolf, and it's nothing I want to be sick of. If mm. I was trying to put myself in your situation, like if I heard that all the time, my wife passed away, I'd just be like, shut up, mm. you know, after a yeah. while. But I mean, again, yeah. you could also think about it in a different way, which is it's cathartic. Yeah. To to talk about it. Yeah, but of course, when I came back, uh, I was uh, I couldn't understand the choice that we had taken together uh, to to climb one of the most difficult or dangerous mountain mountains in the world and and uh it was so hard to kind of stand up and and be proud of that choice if you know what i mean it was so hard to understand why how could we do this and we didn't do it only once we went in 2005 and in 2008 and and it was so hard uh to come back and and to kind of come back alone without hope to be proud of that choice. I couldn't understand it somehow. Did you think you were a failure? Absolutely. And I I, I, I had so much guilt uh, that it was me that came back and not him. Because he, he was so, yeah, he was the only child and I had, I have three sisters and brothers. So, yeah, and uh, he was such a good man. And so I... Yeah, so many times I wanted to change places. Why is that mountain so difficult? Like, difficult is probably not even the right word. It's the most, probably the most dangerous mountain to climb. It's one of the most. There is, uh, there is um, more dangerous mountains, of course, but this is uh, one that has, uh, if you look at the, the statistic, it's not very good. It's a unique mountain. It's a diamond. I. I personally think it's the most beautiful mountain in the world. When we were there in 2005, we were there for 96 days, climbing up and down, and we went up to Camp 3 like 11 times and turned around every time, didn't get higher up on the mountain, but you get to know the mountain in a very uh, strange way. It's hard to understand if you're not a mountaineer, but... You kind of wake up every morning, you climb out of your tent and you look up and you see, you look at the mountain and you have kind of a relationship with it after a while, you know what I mean. It's almost like a supernatural thing, right? In a way. It is, yeah. These expeditions take months to plan, six, nine yeah. months, just to get up to Camp 3. Camp 4 is a huge accomplishment. And then to summit it, what I've read, the mountain kind of has to allow you. Yeah, absolutely. And there is just a few days uh, in the year where it's even possible. And to be there, situated in a good position, those days, is that's why not everybody gets to the top. But uh, it, I wouldn't say it, it's very difficult. It's not like it's... Uh, there is so many mount, other mountains in the world that are 10 times more difficult to climb. But... It is it is high. It is almost as high as Mount Everest, and most people climb it without oxygen. That's the difficult part. Was there ever a point where you thought to yourself, in all the crazy stuff that you did, you did a lot of crazy shit, lady. <laughs> where was there ever a point where you thought to yourself, "Wow, I pushed my body almost past the point of no return here. Like I could be in trouble." I've, I've thought that, yes. When. Um, probably a few times, but, um, <laughs> the last time I can remember, I felt that really strong was, uh, me and, uh, Rune Jelnes, uh, polar explorer. We tried to 
to paddle in a canoe to the North Pole in 2011. So we went up there in the summertime and to prepare, it was difficult because nobody had been there before. So we had nobody to ask. So we just had to look at... <laughs> yeah, you can't just like pull over and ask directions at the North Pole. <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah, and how, how does their summer ice move uh, compared to the winter? Run into like 7-Eleven and get a map. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so it's... Uh, but when we're out there on the ocean, and it's 4,000 meters um, under the ice, and and we are in a canoe sometimes, but when we're on the ice where there's no water, where we can't paddle, then it was a lot of uh, crumbled ice and slush, and it was... Um, I, I didn't feel comfortable at all because I could close my eyes for 15 seconds when I opened them. The world looked different because everything is moving constantly, floating around. So and you have to make decisions really fast, and you get really tired of it after skiing for 12 hours or and making decisions all the time. Yeah, so that we we turned around after some weeks. Really, you were like, "Fuck <laughs> this, I'm back. out." <laughs> yeah, it's too hard. It's too it's too uh, it's too dangerous. There is there physically like a place on the top of the North Pole, like a GPS coordinate, or is it just what is it? How do you know you're at the North Pole? Because it's constantly moving. Yeah, yeah. So you're not there for very long. You're there because we went to the North Pole, but that was on the win in the winter time, where it's more ice. But uh, when you're at the North Pole, you're not there for very long, probably maybe half a minute or a minute, or if you're lucky, five minutes. But you you drift around, so. So you take a selfie and then you bounce. Yeah, <laughs> and you don't know. There is nothing that indicates that you're at the North Pole, like you're on the South Pole. There is a lot of buildings and posters and everything that can tell you that you're you're there but North Pole you just have to try to find uh 90 degrees yeah because when you go to sleep at night I read that you're eight kilometers away from where you were the day before because the ice is constantly moving so you have to rework Mm. area that you already worked the day before yeah because um that's why because we move against the current because the current takes the ice and, and move it towards the continent of Canada and Greenland and away from Russia. So you can't start from Russia, even if it's easier because you drift with the ice, but you can't get to the ice because there is no ice towards land. That's why you have to start in Canada and Greenland and, and move against. Yeah. Now, speaking of pain, this is something I always thought about when I watch these shows on mountaineering and stuff. Yeah, you're in these sub-zero temperatures. You're placing the human body mm. in areas where they can't survive very long. You know, the death zone. Your body's dying. Mm. You're starving for oxygen, but mm. you still have to pee. You still have to pee. Yeah, you still have yeah. to go out and pee. And as a guy, you could just like you know <laughs> whip it out and then go to the bathroom. But you have to actually physically pull down your pants and pee. Uh, no, I don't. No, you I, don't. I have a, I have a freshet. I have a pee, a pee funnel. Oh. <laughs> I bought from America, from on the internet. You get everything. So, <laughs> Who made that? That's crazy. Somebody actually invented that? Yeah, it's really, it's really nice. <laughs> you can use it at home also if you have to get up in the middle of the night. I don't do that. but uh, <laughs> That's great. But it, and, it, and it's great because it, and the thing is that when I stuffer. use this pee funnel, yeah. it, it has this long and uh, see-through, how do you say, um, 
where the pee comes out. Yeah, like a hole, like like a chute. Like, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, and the thing is that that doesn't shrink when it gets cold. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. when the boys go to the toilet, it's pretty cold inside. Yeah. Them too. They, they can't find anything in their shorts. We, we kind of got to work it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's easier for me. Also, you were just like, you just like pop this thing in, bloop, you're ready to go. Now, did you always yeah. have that thing? Or is this like no. a... I didn't have it. So what did you do old school style? Like back in the day, you had to drop trowel, right? Yep. And go out and look at the stars. But that was, it's, you you lose some and you win some. Because it's easier to go to the toilet now, but I don't get to see the stars in the night anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. Oh, you don't get to see the stars anymore? Dude, that's so hilarious. <laughs> but, <laughs> so you're a very positive person. You have to be, right? Yeah, I think so. If I were in a tent at 8,000 meters, getting out of my bed in the middle of the night for me to take a pee is really difficult. You know, I have to walk 20 (laughs) feet, but you're at like a mountain, the cruising altitude of a 747 jet, and you got to get out your comfy tent that you just climbed (laughs) for like 20 hours straight, and you got to pee, and you got to get your butt chapped. I mean, so you got to be, you got to think about it in a very positive way. Of course. Yeah, you have to. Otherwise, why would you be there? Why would you climb these mountains if it wasn't fun? Why would you ski to the pole or anywhere if it wasn't meaningful? That's not for me. I have to, I have to enjoy it. I have to enjoy every moment. And, and, and I think I, I I do because when I'm outside, I, I'm just, it's so easy, it's much easier to be where you are 100% because the situation all, often requires it that you you are there. You are in your life more present, if you, you know what I mean. Yeah, you're in the moment. In the moment. And in your dream, maybe you've planned this for two years and you've looked at the map, you looked at, uh, you've pictured it, how it would be, and suddenly you're there after a lot of planning and training for it. So it's kind of a deep inside a bone marrow. How do you say that? In your bones. Yeah. So um, I don't know how to explain it. but Yeah, I know what you mean. That's something I like to ask people too, especially people that have had enormous success like yourself. Can mm. you be in the moment? When you climb the top of Mount Everest, when you make it to the top of mm. K2, when you make it to mm. the North Pole, when you travel hundreds of miles across the ice in Antarctica and make it to the South Pole, can you be in the moment with it or are you always thinking about the next thing? No, I have to be in the moment and, <clears throat> and uh, not often I have planned the next thing. Uh, that's the thing I've planned is to be there and I don't know what's going to happen after that. But to be in Antarctica, maybe that's the hardest place to be where it's such a mental journey nothing happens around you it's uh you have the horizon and you never get to that horizon and it it looks pretty much the same for weeks <laughs> so it's like you have to the journey exists in your head kind of that's the most uh, mentally hard uh journey i would say even if to climb something and or to ski to local it's more technical and more dangerous it's not so hard mentally because you have so many things that is there in the moment you have to focus on, if you know what I mean. Keep your mind busy. But in Antarctica, yeah. it's just flat. It's like Nebraska with ice. Yeah. Everywhere you see is the same, right? Yeah. Same topography. And, and, yeah. Very monotonous, I would assume. Yeah. 
Yeah, and after a while, it, you you feel that. But I have not more to think about. I've I've thought about everything. I'm finished. I'm finished thinking. <laughs> but that that's when you have to go and dig deep and and work hard in your head. Mm. And training and that sort of thing. Now, uh, when because you're sleeping in these small tents with two or three people at a time, mm. Mm. I would assume that it gets kind of smelly. People fart and that sort of thing. <laughs> I mean, do you have like a, a pre-screening process for people to make sure they don't have IBS or gas? Well, you don't want somebody getting gassy in pressure situations, right? Because it's not like you could just open the tent in the middle of the night and let the air in yeah. because you're like on a cliff. And, and if you open the tent, it could fall off and you could die yeah. no matter how bad it smells. Uh, I'll have to promise you that. And when you're in the altitude, I don't know if you've ever taken a bag of chips up in the altitude, like 1,500 meter. A bag of chips? A bag of chips or okay. a bag of, because it's, uh, yeah, everything that has air in it and you, 1,500 meter or 500 meter, it blows up. And uh, that happens to... Um, uh, Gases? Yes. So people do fart <laughs> in altitude. But it's easy to put, to open the zip and then brush it outside. I would assume that it might be, might be kind of dangerous. Because you're on the um, side of a mountain and, it, you know. <laughs> and then what, what if you have to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night? Yeah, you don't have to. Uh, oh, you you got to hold it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? No, you have to try to go in the, in the evening before you go to bed in the night. Because that's the kind of a rule we have to go to the bathroom in the, in the, in the evening. Because if you, you sleep in the tent and you kind of have all that, Sit inside you. You have to warm it up, and it takes a lot of energy. So get rid of it. So you, <laughs> you got to warm up the shit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's funny, dude. Yo, that's how cold it is. The shit is yeah. frozen inside you. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <laughs> that's crazy. But funny use energy. <laughs> wow, that that's unbelievable. I never even thought I've about that. I've never had a conversation like this. Oh come on, support. you do it with your friends. You got sisters. <laughs> yeah, I know you do. Yeah. I'm like that. I like to ask these like stupid questions. Yeah, well, that's funny. I like that. All right, now I got one for you. This is one of the last ones. Now mm. I read there's it's called the death zone. You go above this height and your body is starting to die. Now there's a lot of climbers that say once you go above that point, even if you're part of a team, it's every man for himself. And there's a lot of people that say people get left behind that are in trouble. That's that's something that's very difficult for me to understand because you would figure as a human, if you saw someone else in trouble, you try and help them as much as you can. But when your body is already dying and you don't have enough energy, these decisions have to be made all the time. Like, how do you come to grips with that kind of reality? And where is your stance yeah, on that? To me, that sounds terrible. Uh, I, I, I don't know who said that, and I don't know anybody that would say something like that. And it's above 8,000 meter that's how... All the cells in your body die so much faster than at sea level. So that's why it's called the death zone. If you're there long enough, you will die. And, um, uh, of course, if you, you feel that you can leave your best friend or a friend behind, that's when you've already failed. I mean, that's when you should have turned around a long time ago. Cause then you're not, uh, working or you're not functioning anymore. So I, I don't recognize that at all. It's not a part of my world. No, you don't do that. Yeah, you don't buy into that. There were some instances. There was a British mountaineer, Sharp, 
who was left sitting under an area and people passed him and nobody checked on him. And um, I know Sir, Sir Edmund Hillary had some pointed comments because I guess it's the whole mountain fever thing. Some mm. people, when they get to a certain height, they just want to mm. reach the top no matter what. It's, mm. it, it almost yeah. blinds them in, in a sense to what's yeah. going on around them. It becomes everything. I mean, yeah, have yeah. you seen that or experienced <clears throat> that yourself? Oh, of course I've seen it. Yeah, I've seen it. And, and, and I have to admit that it is harder to turn around the nearer you are the summit. Uh, it's the hardest thing is to, to decide when it's right to turn around because you can always kind of move on a little bit more. You can climb a little bit longer. But it's the most, um, it's the most dangerous thing. And, uh, and it, you need to turn around so many times when you're a mountaineer. And that's, I, like, I can't, I don't have the number of every time I turn around. And that's, I'm so proud of every time I made that decision. It's like, okay, never think about if I shouldn't have turned around. I turned around for, for reason. So, but of course, I I recognize that feeling of uh, fever summit. The closer you are to the goal, uh, harder it is, or the stronger the fever is. Because you're a very goal oriented person, no? Uh, yeah, um, but not like crazy. <laughs> uh, so many things I haven't done. I have tried many many things that I have uh, have given up because I couldn't do it. But some things I have been able to to achieve. Some things, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, some things, dude. Yeah, Come on, man. But, you're you're too humble. No, but it's it's true. There's um um. I think I'm I'm just um, kind of average, normal girl. I'm not very different than my 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 friends. Uh, I just love being outside. Maybe a little more than average. I don't know. I think you're a little bit different than your friends. <laughs> when your friends are like, hey, let's go to Starbucks and, and go hang out at the mall. You're no, like, let me go to the polls. <laughs> my friends climb. Like, oh, they do? Hey, okay. Now we're going out to climb now in, in a half an hour, and I'm going out with five girlfriends. So it's, uh, and it is 14 below zero. So 14 below? It's winter in Oslo now. <laughs> Whoa, holy crap. Yeah. Do you get competitive with your friends? No, they are so much stronger than me. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. What does mom and dad say? Mom and dad must be like, what are you doing, Cecile? You ain't going nowhere. Like, my mom would be pissed. She wouldn't let me go to f climb these mountains. No, she 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 didn't like it in the start. And I, I don't think she likes it now when I do. But now I don't. I I'm Now I'm just a, a housewife. Go climb sometimes, but uh, she didn't like it when we went to K2, not in 2005 and not in 2008. But but she always knew that it was my decision, and she decided something else for her life. And and I, I listened to her one time when she uh, someone asked her that, how can you let your daughter do these things? And then she turned around to the person that said that, and she said do you have children? And he said, yes, I do. Uh, do you want them to be happy? Yes, of course I do. That's what I want for my children too. And then she walked away. And and she didn't know I was listening because this was after a speech. 
and uh but i then that's <laughs> i was really proud of her i like what she said go mom yeah do you have kids now yeah i have a daughter she's 14 months wow i have a daughter who's 15 months wow yeah i just i yeah that'd be cool man what if your daughter started climbing she ha- she already has she has a- <laughs> she she has been climbing for a year and she she knows five words and one of them is climbing she probably runs the jungle gym <laughs> She's like at the top. Yeah. She's like, come on, you can't get me. I know. She's not that good yet, but she, she likes to climb on everything. And uh, we let her. So what, when, when she starts seriously climbing? Then I don't want her to climb. If, if she comes home one day and tells me she wants to climb 8,000 meter peaks, I say, no way. <laughs> no way. But you know, you got to listen to your mom's advice. Yeah, I know. That's the tough but, uh, thing. That, but that's hard. But I know how it is on 8,000 meter peaks. It's, uh, it's a jungle and it's crazy a lot of crazy people but you can't stop her people. you can't stop her i know but i don't want her to, to if i but she can climb everything but not the highest <laughs> i don't know dude she's gonna want to live up to you you yeah. know that no maybe not maybe she wants to do something totally different i nah, hope i, hope I doubt it just, <laughs> you're I gonna have to, to play the piano yeah 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 you're gonna have to buy her some golf clubs and i think we'll stop right there Jimsvelt is available on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Sprecher, and on SoundCloud. If you like this, please share it with all your friends and family. On iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you could subscribe and rate and comment as well. Thanks so much again for listening. I greatly appreciate it. For Jim from Jimsvelt, peace. And come to you.